Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have five movies to review for you. It's been a while since I've been able to review five movies, but I made some time this week and got around to seeing some of them. All of them are theatrically released, which is another rarity for me in this day and age where I have two jobs and I'm hosting this podcast. But two of the movies that I'm going to be reviewing for you are brand new. The first one is probably the most brainless of the new movies. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Expendables 4, which is styled as Expend 4 Bulls. In other words, they took the A in Expendables and replaced it with the number 4. And I said last week on my segment, What's Coming Up Next, that this could be a bad sign, especially considering that about eight years ago, there was a Fantastic Four movie that came out that was critically derailed and it commercially flopped. And they styled it so that the A in Fantastic, or the second A in Fantastic, would be replaced with the number four. So a lot of moviegoers and comic book fans pejoratively call this Fantastic Four movie Fan Four Stick. And that name actually stuck. Would people call this movie Expend Fourables? I don't know, but I'm going to call it, it uh, that title for the rest of the review. But anyway, this is the first Expendables movie since the Expendables 3, which is actually called that. They didn't take the number 3 and put it into the E, although that would have actually been clever, except it would have been the 3 Expendables, which is kind of clunky. But anyway... This movie is the first Expendables film in nine years. The other Expendables movie, Expendables 3, came out in 2014, and it had a very impressive roster of talent behind it. In that movie, and this is just the third film, was Sylvester Stallone, Jason Statham, Jet Li, Antonio Banderas, Harrison Ford, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mel Gibson, Wesley Snipes, and that's not, oh yeah, Kelsey Grammer was in it too, and that's not counting the, the usual suspects in the Expendables movies, Dolph Lundgren, Randy Couture, and Terry Crews. This movie, Expend Four Bulls, has far fewer talented actors in it. Sylvester Stallone comes back, but he's not first build. Jason Statham is actually first build. And amongst the other people who come back from the other Expendables movies, Dolph Lundgren comes back, Randy Couture comes back, and that's really about it. Missing from this film, which is very unfortunate, includes uh, Jet Li, Terry Crews, Mickey Rourke, and several other people. And their presence is especially missed when you realize that the person who gets third billing in this film, or actually fourth billing, excuse me, is Megan Fox. And Megan Fox plays another expendable here, arguably the first female expendable, I suppose. Although Ronda Rousey was in the previous Expendables movie, so I I don't know. But even though Ronda Rousey can't exactly act because she wasn't trained as an actress, she can act actually a lot better than Megan Fox. Because my problem with Megan Fox in this film is my problem with Megan Fox in just about everything else in which I've seen her. 
Not only can she not act, she also doesn't really seem to want to act. She still has her looks going for her, and those looks will eventually fade away in about 10 years, and without them, she pretty much doesn't have a movie career. But my grievance with Megan Fox is the fact that she doesn't really seem to want to have a movie career, and they seem to put her in this movie to attract, I guess, an audience who otherwise wouldn't otherwise be seeing a film with Sylvester Stallone and many other action stars in it. And that's really unfortunate. But anyway, Expendables 4, or Expendables, is where the Expendables team comes back and the people who are missing, there's no explanation as to why they're missing, but you really don't need that in the plot. They just didn't want to re-sign their contracts. And I think anyone who probably doesn't even know that much about the movie business can figure that out for themselves. But the Expendables, armed with every weapon they can get their hands on, they are the world's last line of defense and the team that gets called when all other options are off the table. That is the elevator pitch synopsis of Expendables. And honestly, I think the reason that there isn't more of a story there in the elevator pitch is that... You know they're going to be sent to some foreign land where they're going to kill some terrorist and try to prevent World War III from going on, and that is pretty much exactly what happens. As a matter of fact, there isn't a lot of time for exposition, and the little exposition that Expend 4 Bulls is given is blink and you'll miss it, or pretty much take some wax out of your ears and you'll miss it, because pretty much... The guy who's giving the Expendables their assignment is a man by the name of Marsh who's played by Andy Garcia. And I said this last week on my What's Coming Up Next segment, when Andy Garcia is making his first appearance in a movie franchise, that is usually the death toll for the movie franchise. And that's not against Andy Garcia. He is an excellent actor. But lately, he seems to be put in films where it seems like the studio wants to have a cooler. In other words, a movie franchise would be on a hot streak and a cooler would come by to get them sort of off their hot streak. And that's kind of what Andy Garcia does here. I think he acts relatively well here, but his screen time is very, very limited. In fact, he probably only gives about 15 to 30 seconds to tell the Expendables team exactly what they're doing. And when all is said and done, actually, the antagonist of this film, who's given fifth billing in this film, uh, Tony Ja is his name, and he is action star from Taiwan, it's pretty much not important what he's doing or what he's trying to do. He's just one of those villains who just seems to kick ass and try to take over the world, but what he's going to do with the world afterwards, no one really knows. Also, speaking of bad actors who are in this film, 50 Cent is given third billing in this film, which I think is a huge mistake, especially considering that Dolph Lundgren and Randy Couture are at least coming back. They should have gotten some bigger billing. And 50 Cent has been in more movies than Eminem has, but it's, it really says something when Eminem has been in one major film and he's been excellent in that film, whereas 50 Cent is making major appearances in in various films and he is not only doesn't act very well but he also has the inability to enunciate but on top of my grievances with the roster of talent they or lack thereof in this film also the story isn't very memorable the kills are frequent but not very impressive and the 
special effects team really took a backseat here by editing some of these special effects. Even something as simple as a plane or a helicopter landing is obviously done with a lot of CGI. So much so, in fact, that this movie looks like a video game. And that is not a compliment. It, it looks like actually a video game from PlayStation 1 with those limited graphics. And that's really a shame. Also, there is a subplot where one of the Expendables dies. And the way, the, the explanation behind their perceived death, they do come back later. That's a little bit of a spoiler. But I'm not going to tell you exactly who comes back. I'm going to just leave it at that. But the rapport with The Expendables, which was the selling point of at least the first two films. The third film, despite having an even more impressive roster of uh, acting talent in it, wasn't particularly good for a variety of reasons. Part of it was a special effects. The other part of it was it's obvious some stunt doubles were used in a movie where you're supposed to be proving that old guys can hold their own just as much as young guys. But The Expend Four Bowls really lost their way. It is a terrible film. The kills are laughable, not just the way they happen, but also the really shoddy special effects that happen with them, which is why Expend Bulls gets my rating of a flunk out. If they were going to make another Expendables movie after nearly a decade, A, it better be smart. B, it actually should have some impressive talent other than Sylvester Stallone and Jason Statham. And C, they should have upped the budget on the special effects here. But unfortunately, it's obvious this film took a lot of shortcuts in terms of special effects, in terms of screenwriting, and also in terms of directions. It's really too bad because director Scott Waugh had some other actors who weren't nearly as experienced as Sylvester Stallone alone, two-time Academy Award nominee Sylvester Stallone at that. And when you put Megan Fox into a into his a movie like this, probably even more than Andy Garcia, that's a sign that a beloved franchise is just about to meet its maker. And for Expend Four Bulls, it most certainly did. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Dumb Money, which make no mistake about it, don't be fooled by the title, Dumb Money is a very smart movie. It's not only based on a true story, but stylistically, as far as films go, it is very reminiscent of Adam McKay's first foray into drama, The Big Short, which was an excellent film about with excellent actors in it about a very complicated subject. The director of this film is not Adam McKay, although it could have been. It's actually Craig Gillespie, who is an Australian film director, who has previously brought us a number of uh, noteworthy films, including but not limited to, and this is just as a director, the Pam and Tommy miniseries. He directed three episodes of that. He also directed Cruella, which came out two years ago and was one of the first films that I went out to see in a theater after over a year of being sequestered because of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
He also directed I, Tonya and Lars and the Real Girl, amongst other films. And I, Tonya was a, a very good docudrama, but Dumb Money is actually even better than I, Tonya because I, I felt like Margot Robbie was miscast in that film, even though she was nominated for an Oscar, but more on that later. Let me get to Dumb Money because this is a very entertaining and very fun film about, again, a very complicated topic, specifically the GameStop short squeeze that occurred in January of 2021 when America was still in the grip of the pandemic. So in the stock market, just very briefly, a short squeeze is a rapid increase in the price of a stock owing primarily to an excess of short selling of stock rather than underlying fundamentals. And a short squeeze occurs when there is a lack of supply and an ex excess of demand for the stock due to short sellers, that is, people who don't buy and trade on Wall Street, having to buy stocks to cover their short positions. And GameStop kind of became an underdog, not just the retailer itself, which is still in a number of malls, but is not nearly as profitable as it was before people didn't have to go to the store to buy video games. Let, let me just put it that way. So this movie, Dumb Money, has a number of people in it, and it is the ultimate Davy and Goliath tale based on the insane true story of everyday people who flipped the script on Wall Street and got rich by turning GameStop into the world's hottest company, at least for about a month. And Paul Dano is the star of this film. He plays a hedge fund manager whose net worth is only about $91,000 when we first meet him by the name of Keith Gill, who resides in Brockton, Massachusetts and works in Boston. And he is not only a hedge fund manager, but he's also a social media influencer. And at first he doesn't get a lot of traction until he goes on Reddit and starts making videos, encouraging people to buy stock in GameStop. And a variety of people actually do that, including a nurse who's a single mother of two by the name of Jenny, who's played by America Ferreira, an actual employee at GameStop named Marcus Barcia, who's played by Anthony Ramos, and two college students by the name of Harmony Williams and Riri, who are played by Talia Ryder and Mihala Harold, respectively. And that's just amongst some of the average Joes who are buying the stock. And this is much to the chagrin of some big-time hedge fund managers, including Gabe Plotkin, who's played by Seth Rogen, Steve Cohen, who's played by Vincent D'Onofrio, and Kenneth Griffin, whose net worth is $16 billion, and he's played by Nick Offerman. And as I was watching this film, I honestly didn't understand a lot of it. Of course, I did laugh at some of the comedy that was going on here, the comedy of errors, including some comic relief by the actor who plays Kevin Gill, who is Keith Gill's brother, and he's played by Pete Davidson. And Pete Davidson in this film plays the guy he kind of usually plays. I don't want to call him a slacker because he actually works very hard as a delivery driver, but he's the younger brother to a hedge fund manager, and he doesn't quite have the same book smarts as his brother does, but he's still getting on the bandwagon for this Wall Street Bets Reddit page. And the events in this movie probably didn't happen the way that 
they are depicted on screen, but they largely happened in real life. And just about everyone in this film is great in their roles. I actually did not see this film on my list of movies that were coming out last week on what's coming up next. It, it might have been a, a couple of weeks earlier when I was out, but Dumb Money was a movie based on the poster that I really wanted to see. I kind of rolled my eyes that Pete Davidson was given second billing, but he seems to be given second billing because of his last name being in alphabetical order. But I did think that Pete Davidson was relatively good in this film. Again, I think if Pete Davidson wants a lasting career in movies, he's going to have to stop playing this wisecracking schlub that he's been playing before. And actually, Seth Rogen here plays uh, a hedge fund manager who's worth $400 million. And Seth Rogen usually, in fact, almost always plays someone who's very likable. And in this film, he kind of does. But as this short squeeze with GameStop is going on, he begins to lose money. And you're not exactly sure whether or not you should feel bad for him losing money or not. But there are a lot of elements that are going on in Dumb Money. I think it certainly goes along with a number of other entertaining films about complicated topics like The Social Network and The Big Short in that it has a very talented cast. And it also tells a really good story about this phenomenon that happened very early on in 2021. And the reason that the the stock was going up was because people were buying and no one was selling. And they were kind of wondering as their stock was multiplying in value, whether or not they should sell, but they wouldn't because the Reddit page, wall street bets wasn't going to sell. It's definitely a comedy of errors, definitely based on a true story. But Paul Dano, I think, anchors this cast very well. There are several other great supporting actors in this film. Again, Pete Davidson is probably the least best of the actors in this film. But I think he does well with the role that he's given. But just about everyone else in this film really shines. I also really liked, in addition to Paul Dano and Seth Rogen, I loved uh, Shailene Woodley, who plays Caroline Gill, who is Paul Dano's character's wife. I loved America Ferreira. Anthony Ramos did a really great job. And Dumb Money gets my rating of a knockout. You may not, if you're not particularly familiar with the stock market, like I'm not, you may not get a handle on everything that's being discussed here, and there were times where I just felt kind of stupid as these numbers were coming up, but I think the performances in this film speak volumes about what these investors were going through, whether or not they were well-versed in the stock market or not, and there were some honest-to-goodness, excellent, climactic parts in this film, particularly when some of the investors were called to testify before Congress. They actually used real footage of the congressmen and women grilling them on Zoom when they couldn't go to Washington because of the pandemic. And it was very wise of them to use some of this archive footage. And director Craig Gillespie definitely directed some of his best work here. I think this is probably his best movie, and that's saying a lot given his repertoire. But in addition to that, I think this movie should be actually nominated for Best Ad Adapted Screenplay, because not only is it based on a true story, but it's also based on the book The Anti-Social Network by Ben Messerick, with a story and screenplay written by Lauren Shuker Bloom and Rebecca Angelo. 
And this is a film that I will probably see again if only to get some of my facts straight. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Retirement Plan, which is a semi-new film that was released into theaters, in the United States at least, on September 15th, which was a week ago as the date that I am recording this podcast. So I'm a little bit late to this movie, but it does feature some actors who were stars of action films 10 to 20 years ago. But unlike Expendables, this film might have a simple plot, but it is a lot more entertaining and a lot smarter than I anticipated that it would be. Not smart in terms of its plot, which is pretty straightforward, but smart in terms of its characterization and the fantastic cast of characters that are in this film that are cast very well. The director of this film is Tim Brown, who's directed a number of other B action films, one of which went directly to streaming. And this is his first film where he's had a number of household name talent, most notably Nicolas Cage, who plays a retired assassin whose name is either Matt or Ben. And you never exactly know what his real name is in a more clever than expected running gag of him. But he's introduced a little bit late in the film. You're introduced first to his daughter, Ashley, who's played by Ashley Green, who is a very pretty actress who I have seen in other things. She's most notable for having been in the Twilight series, but like Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, it sounds like she is trying to elevate herself up from the stigma of the Twilight films. And if she makes more films like this, she might actually have a chance of doing that. But anyway, Ashley is caught up in a predicament when her husband who is a driver for a dangerous gangster by the name of Donnie, who's played by Jackie Earl Haley, somehow obtains a thumb drive with some very dangerous information on it. Ashley doesn't know what's on the thumb drive, but she knows that it's dangerous, and she knows that dangerous people are after this thumb drive. So she sends her daughter, Sarah, who is played by Talia Campbell, to the Cayman Islands, to be with her grandfather, and she sneaks the thumb drive into her backpack. So Ashley is captured in a series of twists and turns here by the gangsters, but meanwhile, her daughter Sarah is on her way to visit a grandfather she never knew she had. There are a lot of characters in this film. Uh, Many of them are dangerous hitmen who work for Jackie Earl Haley's character. One of them is a lovable hitman by the name of Bobo, who's played by Ron Perlman. And Ron Perlman has some great scenes in this film. Of course, Ron Perlman has been acting for quite some time, long before he became a household name. And I think here in this film, he, he plays a guy who's technically a villain, but at the same time, he's kind of one of those lovable villains like the uh, bad good guy or the good bad guy, depending on your view of it. And also, uh, Jackie Earl Haley plays a great crime boss whose 
temper is just as short as his stature. And Jack, it's been a while since Jackie Earl Haley has played a villain. And here in this film, he he plays a pretty straightforward, but he also has some moments that are probably a little bit funnier than they than they deserve to be. And there are some other action hero tropes, particularly the aging acting hero sub-genre that are quite familiar. Like, for example, there's the older retired hitman who's estranged from the rest of his family, and because of his commitment to the job, he didn't have any hand in really raising his children, but when they get into a predicament, he's there. There's that familiar trope. There's also the MacGuffin of the thumb drive and also another ally that the aging hitman has, another aging hitman here who's played very well by Ernie Hudson. And there's also the FBI agent, who in this case is played by Lynn Whitfield, who is also after that thumb drive. And it all kind of comes together in a in a story that is familiar and certainly has some familiar tropes and plot elements, but is overall elevated by the performances and the excellent characterization of some of the characters here who we have seen before, but Nicolas Cage, who is known for playing a lot of his characters over the top, and that's just an understatement, actually here doesn't play over the top so much, but in the moments where he is over the top, where he's using his skills as an assassin, there are actually some surprisingly funny moments, particularly in one scene where he has to play senile as a gun is literally to his daughter's head. I think that scene was very well executed and also very well choreographed. And also the performance here by Talia Campbell as Ashley's daughter, Sarah is the, is the performance that really grounds this film. I was very impressed by her performance. I absolutely loved it. In fact, she's adorable. And the movie was going very well, probably up until the last five minutes. I think that's when the climax happened and everything came together. And there's also, I I should note, there's one major crime boss here. Who's a woman who's played by Grace Byers and Grace Byers was previously in the film, the blackening, but here in this film, I didn't recognize her from the blackening at all. Maybe it was because of the way she did her hair. Maybe it was because in the blackening, she dressed a little bit more like a college student. Whereas in this film, she dressed a little bit more like a businesswoman, but either way she was sleek and dangerous. And I absolutely loved her character. But as I said, the last five minutes are a little bit of a letdown. I don't think they tied up a lot of loose ends and the revelation behind what was what was on that thumb drive and why the criminal underworld was after it was a little bit of a deflating moment. But up until that 95% point, I did actually really enjoy the retirement plan. And I think this is a movie that probably promises to be a comeback performance for Nicolas Cage, more so than the film that he did last year where he played himself, um, which was the unbearable weight of massive talent. And considering that Pedro Pascal, who's a very hot property right now, co-starred in the unbearable weight of massive talent, and people are still not talking about that film, probably tells you how much of a disappointment that film was. I gave that film a checkout, but I do give the retirement plan my rating of a marginal knockout 
I, I was considering giving it a check out because of the ending of the film, which was a little bit of a disappointment. But overall, I think 95% of this film, where it uses some characters we've seen before and some tropes we've seen before, still has enough originality from it, from a story and screenplay written by Tim Brown, who also directed the film, to make this film better than your average action film as well as Nicolas Cage film. I was impressed by everyone who was acting in this film. I thought that Ashley Green and Talia Campbell probably had the most standout performances of the people in this film who we wouldn't necessarily know. But Nicolas Cage and Ron Perlman and Jackie Earl Haley, who are more seasoned actors, in other words, they have more decades of experience acting, I think elevated what would otherwise be a forgettable action film to a better genre film. And I was overall very impressed by this film, and it also made me laugh a lot. It was a film that didn't exactly need to be smarter than Expendables, but because it was, it gets my rating of a marginal knockout. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, which is, of course, the third movie in the My Big Fat Greek Wedding franchise. And My Big Fat Greek Wedding is a film that came out early in 2002 and became the highest grossing independent film of all time beating out the previous highest-grossing independent film, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the one from 1990. And that film, interestingly enough, was released early on by New Line Cinema back when they were a fledging movie studio. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles put New Line Cinema on the map, and the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding sort of did the same thing with IFC films, although IFC films already had a lot of indie credit as it was, but now it had indie credit, and a lot more money. So the original by Big Fat Greek Wedding from 2002 made $368.7 million worldwide on a $5 million budget, making it one of the most profitable movies of all time, not just the highest grossing independent film of all time. And my Big Fat Greek Wedding, the original one, was a really cathartic, sort of Cinderella story, which I enjoyed immensely. I've only seen it once back in 2003, but from what I saw of it, I really enjoyed it. And it was followed up a little while later, but in 2016, 14 years later, by My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. And the plot of that movie would have been nice if it had been Tula Neovartalos' daughter getting married, but 
after 14 years, she's probably not ready for that. But that movie had a bigger budget, $18 million. It was still a box office hit at making $90.6 million, but it wasn't uh, nearly as good as the first film. It was, I guess, relatively decent. I, I don't think it was particularly offensive, but or rather, it wasn't... It wasn't flagrantly bad, but if you're going to make a whole movie out, a sequel out of the, the Greek family in this film, it better be another wedding. Otherwise it's, it's not so much a wedding as much as it is a renewal of vows, which kind of felt like a waste of time. But my big fat Greek wedding three was arguably what my big fat Greek wedding two should have been. And it's a better film than my big fat Greek wedding two but not nearly as good as the first one, but I still enjoyed some parts of it. And actually, unlike the first two films, this film, in addition to being written by star Nia Vardalos, is also directed by her. It's not her directorial debut. Back in 2009, she directed another romantic comedy, which also starred John Corbett, which was called I Hate Valentine's Day, which wasn't nearly as well received. But here she's going back to her Greek roots and the same Portokolos family, which she created for the semi-autobiographical first film, which was um, a lot better. But here, the film follows the Portokolos family on a trip to Greece for a family reunion after the death of Portokolos patriarch Gus, who in the previous two films was played by the actor Michael Constantine. And Michael Constantine didn't die too long ago. He died on August 31st, 2021, at the age of 94. So he lived a very long life. And of course, he had a very um, prolific acting career, in addition to being the patriarch here. And unfortunately, even though the matriarch of the family, who's played by Lainey Kazan, is in this film... Lady Kazan might be experiencing health problems related to dementia. And I think she was put into this film. Uh, it's it's good that she was, but to see her after her prolific um, career, not only on screen, but also on stage, uh, struggling with dementia, it was a little sad. And it did add some poignancy to this film. But instead of uh, Lady Kazan's character, the matriarch of the family, actually going to Greece with them. Uh, the aunt, Thea Vula, who's played by Andrea Martin, who has a bigger role in this film uh, than she did in the previous two films, uh, sort of takes over as the vicarious patriarch of, or matriarch of the uh, Partugulos family. And she got some very funny lines here. But again, this film is called My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 when the Portugalos family is going to Greece for a family reunion to visit their patriarch's childhood village off the coast of Greece. And as it turns out, the village they visit is actually almost completely abandoned which seems to me to be strange because if you give anybody in the world 
especially in Greece, but also in more affluent countries like Great Britain or the United States, word that there is an abandoned Greek village off the beautiful coast of Greece that nobody lives in, but there's buildings that are standing there anyway, people are going to come to that village in in droves and make it a tourist destination. I mean, why not? That seems to me to be a logical explanation for that or a logical thing that would happen. But then again, life is not logical sometimes. But one of my issues with this film, not only it being not as funny as the previous film, was not only that it has to do with a family reunion and it's called My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, but it also, there is a wedding in the film, but it's not of direct family members. And it would seem to me that there would be, if you were to make another movie about a big fat Greek wedding, that it should have a wedding that's not just there to serve the purpose of the title. I mean, why wasn't it called My Big Fat Greek Reunion? It it, it just seems logical to me because... When you say my big fat Greek anything, you know, if you've seen the first film, who the characters are going to be, who the actors are going to be, they're going to be reprising their roles. And there, there, there shouldn't be any incentive for trying to remind people about the original film because you don't really have to. You just put my big fat Greek in there and people will know that it's or will presume that it's a sequel. And in this case, they would be absolutely right. So I do think that my Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 certainly had its moments, and it has some great shots of this village off the coast of Greece, some great panoramic views as well, in addition to also some fish-out-of-water culture shock for some people who were raised in America who are visiting Greece. It doesn't get into some of the troubles that Greece is having right now as a country, like it's ongoing recession. It doesn't really have to. It's a lighthearted comedy for that reason. But I did feel like it, it, it had some other sort of complicated subplots that are brought up here and there, but not exactly resolved, if you call resolved being just brought up and then dropped a little later. And they didn't feel especially conducive to the story at hand. And I feel like there there should have been a little bit more to that, as well as maybe some screenplay rewrites. It's great that the movie had the supporting cast that it did, but when it's one thing to give the each cast member a moment to shine, it's another thing to complicate it with their own baggage that they're bringing with them to this trip. I, I think that some of the baggage of some of these characters, including the daughter of Tula and Ian, who has some troubles at her college at NYU, could have been left to the side. And there was also a romantic subplot with the uh, daughter of Tula and Ian with another guy of Greek descent who it wasn't really clear to me, is it their, is it her cousin? I, I wasn't quite sure. And maybe I needed a, a, a family tree to kind of keep track of some of the characters here, but I don't think that a lighthearted comedy like my big fat Greek wedding three would get into a topic like incest or even touch that. Um, but my big fat Greek wedding three was a serviceable, relatively decent comedy. I did find myself laughing a lot more than I thought I would. And I give it my rating of a checkout, but my primary grievance with it is that it should have been called my big fat Greek reunion 
or something to that effect. It didn't need to be, it need, it didn't need to have wedding in the title. There is a wedding in the film, but not for any major characters. And it also served somewhat kind of like a moot point here. So my big fat Greek wedding three is a decent film, but don't go out of your way to go to a theater to see it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Camp Hideout. This is a film that's made on a noticeably low budget, and it's also a faith-based film, although you wouldn't exactly know it from some of the tropes that are put in here. For for instance, this film uh, it takes place at a camp, and given the giant cross that's in the main hall of this camp, you can presume that it's Christian, but nobody mentions here the <clears throat> their faith exactly, except in one instance where one of the campers is missing and they pray for him to come back safely. Other than that, it is somewhat of a forced slapstick film that is appropriate for all ages. It is rated PG, but whether all ages will find it funny or not, I don't exactly know. But it details the story of a teenager, I think, by the name of Noah, who's played by Ethan Drew. The reason I say that I think he's a teenager is because it's not clear exactly what age he is. He could be in junior high, could be of high school age. This movie doesn't exactly tell you. But he finds himself in a predicament where he gets a device that looks like a video game controller from two really bad people. And to hide out... He gets on a bus to a Christian camp called Camp Hideout, and there he meets a number of colorful characters, uh, including some uh, campers who are who seem to be really out of touch with reality and seem to be taken from other movies as well. And by that I mean definitely older movies. He also meets some charismatic counselors, including Jake, who's played by Corbin Blue who sounds like the name of a French dish, but he's actually an actor who started out as a child actor on High School Musical, and he's grown up to become a very handsome man at that. And this camp is also run by a very old conservative man by the name of Falco, who's played by Christopher Lloyd, who tones it down here compared to some of his other films. And I actually kind of wish, given that he was a grumpy old man with a rabid dog, that he had some other parts in this movie that were, shall we say, a bit more aggressive. And there is also a a part where the two crooks who are after Noah for this device find him at this camp, and there are moments where the campers, including the head of the camp, Falco, Christopher Lloyd's character, should have called the police, but instead they set up traps for these burglars and try to uh, get them to fall for these traps. Does that sound familiar? 
Yeah, well, as it turns out, there is a lot that would compare this movie maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less to films like Meatballs or Ernest Goes to Camp and more like Home Alone. And as it turns out, one of the producers was inspired to make this film based on how many times his kids watched the movie Home Alone, which makes this movie, in essence, a ripoff of Home Alone. And the movie also seems to have pulled a lot of punches when it came to its faith-based basis. And it's really unfortunate because I do think this film could have been at least a little bit more original. And I and it may not be playing at a theater near you because it was filmed in Franklin, Tennessee in October of 2021. And the timing of this film coming out probably couldn't have been worse because it came out in theaters, at least locally here in Nashville on September 15th. But I think one thing they should have done was probably hold off on releasing this film until maybe May or June of next year. The reason being is because you don't want to release a movie about a camp in September when a lot of kids are going back to school. That's a really, that's probably setting your movie up for disaster. But I didn't want to be too hard on Camp Hideout because it is a film that's made for kids. And being a faith-based film, it does have its heart in the right place. But it gets my rating of a strikeout because the slapstick is bad, the gags are very predictable, and the characters are not very well fleshed out. There are also some characters that seem to be intentionally annoying for the sake of getting a laugh, and it had been a little bit more grounded in reality. It might have stood a chance of being a better film, but it probably would have stood a better chance at being a better film if it hadn't flagrantly ripped off Home Alone. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of September 25th through September 29th, 2023. And there are a number of films that are subject to being released in theaters on September 27th and September 28th, which are Wednesday and Thursday, respectively. One of them is a movie that's called The Blind. And this is a movie that I kind of look forward to seeing and kind of don't look forward to seeing because this is the film about um, Phil Robertson, who I believe is related to Pat Robertson. And long before he was a reality TV star, he fell in love and started a family, but his demons threatened to tear their lives apart. This is a true story that started a dynasty. Now, a couple of months ago, Pat Robertson died. And even though I really shouldn't say anything bad about somebody who died, I really have mixed feelings about Pat Robertson because he was um, a man of faith who also happened to be very homophobic. 
And that was just one of the main reasons why I couldn't stand the dude. So I'm going to take the blind with a grain of salt. I can't guarantee whether or not I'm going to see it. If I do see it, I will probably be one of the only people in the theater who will be laughing their ass off at this film. And I'll let you know what I think on a future show. But the biggest movie that's going to be coming out on September 29th is a film that's called The Creator. Now, the director of this film is, if this if this computer will speed up a little bit, the, the director of this film also directed Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. His name is Gareth Edwards. And this film, The Creator, is not in the Star Wars universe as much as uh, as, as far as I know, but it is a science fiction film and it's set against the backdrop of a war between humans and robots with artificial intelligence and a former soldier finds the secret weapon, a robot in the form of a young child. Now we've seen this kind of trope in movies before, or at least I have, but I'm still interested in seeing it because there seems to be a trend recently about AI being the villain which in the entertainment industry, it seems to be in real life. That's why the writer strike and the SAG after, after strike are still going on. And by the way, I am totally on the side of the writers and the actors in this scenario because, yeah, you don't want AI to take their jobs because movies will suffer as a result. Because as far as AI has come, there's no way it can actually authentically replace human creativity, at least not in the long run. That's just my opinion. But in, in any event, John David Washington stars in this movie as Joshua, who's the main protagonist. You also have uh, Gemma Chan, Alison Janney, Ken Watanabe, and several other great actors who are in this film as well. This is a movie that I will likely see. It will definitely be on the top of my list. And I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that's subject to being released in theaters on September 29th is Dumb Money, which I actually reviewed for you right now. Must have been released in select theaters. Well, I highly recommend that film for you, for those of you who have listened to my show earlier. And if you listen to my show earlier, you probably know that I recommended it for you. This is an excellent film, a very smart movie with a great cast. So definitely see it. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 29th is a movie that's called Saw X, which is the 10th Saw movie, which I'll tell you right now, I won't see because a Saw movie is a Saw movie. It's just one extreme after another. And I've seen a couple of Saw films, but not enough to make me want to see this 10th film. And this is certainly predictive of movie studios just milking a horror franchise to death. This is a film that I will skip, but if you want to see it, it's subject to being released in theaters on September 29th. And the last film that I will cover here is a film that's called Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie. Now, I know that Paw Patrol is very popular amongst young kids, and that is probably one of the big reasons why this film is, is expected to do very well. I have not seen an episode of Paw Patrol ever. I could see a couple of episodes on Paramount+, Plus, but honestly, I have better things to do. But I might see the movie, actually. The movie features the... It's, it's fully animated, and it features the voice acting talents of Finn Lee Epp, Ron Pardo, McKenna Grace, and Christian Convery. Paw Patrol is a movie that I might see. In fact, compared to Saw X, I probably will see it. And I'll let you know what I think on a future show. 
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.